0: Well, to be honest, I mean, Jen, my wife and I haven't been at the church that long. And so I feel actually really uh, special and privileged that it's been spotted by John and Joe somehow that that I am best placed to talk about sin and evil. Um, I, think, I think that must be... Yeah, disturbing in, in some sort of way so I so I, I'm gonna embrace this in as best as I can but I'm joking but but I mean it seriously as well and when anybody comes to talk about sin and evil and evil desires and lustful desires like this it's it's the temptation is for us to think all right this is us in the church talking to the world we've got this sorted and the world hasn't and it's very tempting to look at somebody at the front and say oh yeah they've got this sorted and and you know we haven't and I'm sort of telling you how to do it please know that's not what's going on this evening this is like as they say a beggar trying to help other beggars how to find bread, especially on this issue. We're all in the same boat on this issue. What an incredible passage. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness. So we're gonna, I'm gonna try and achieve sort of three things that are all gonna be slightly intermingled during the course of this evening. So number one, flee and pursue. Two important words at the start there, weren't there? And I'm calling that the problem of invisible ignored evil. Number two, how to disagree well. The problem of grabbing too tightly to secondary identities. I'm gonna explain this and unpack this a bit more. Number three, being held captive that actually the problem is personal. That Satan is real and Satan is not stupid. The problem of small increments in our lives and idols. Is that okay? Does that sound like a plan? Okay, so this question got a, Large response in the previous service, and I think it might not get such a large response in this service. How many of you of you have watched Father Ted? Yeah, there you go. I thought so, I thought so. Mostly from this side. Father Ted, comedy program, Channel 4, long time ago. There's a comedian on that show uh, called Ardle O'Hanlon, and I once went to see him do his live stand-up show. He's absolutely hilarious. And, um, and he talked about um, his disgust, it was in the era when, I don't know if you remember back about 10 years ago, suddenly our TV screens were just full of more and more and more cookery programs. The Great British Bake Off, cook master chef, cooking this, cooking that, cooking that. And Ardlow Lohan basically said, I am so sick to death. I am sick to death of cookery programs. You could watch cookery programs from the moment you get up to the moment you go to bed at night. He said, to be honest, my granny could get a cookery program on TV at the minute. They're all over the place, and it's totally irresponsible. There are all these programs about cookery, and there's not one about the washing up. And basically tonight, my job is to do a talk about the washing up. It's not the most exciting thing to do. It's not the most fun thing to do. But as we come to this subject, as we come to the reality, somebody has to preach about the washing up. I mean, if you're listening to this back on the podcast while you're running, this is maybe not gonna be the most encouraging, inspiring kind of, you know, pumping tunes for your run because we're gonna talk about fleeing the evil desires of youth. We're gonna talk about the lusts that come along. We're gonna talk about the world and what it does to us. And that's not the easiest stuff to talk about, but it's really, really important to be honest about it. So I need a volunteer. I need a volunteer. Great, thank you. Would you like to come up? Can you give a round of applause? So tonight, in the spirit of not just talking about the the fun stuff, the cooking, but we're gonna talk about the washing up and making things stay clean and making things stay proper, we're gonna actually do a little bit of serious work, and we're going to be thinking about the stuff that's maybe not so great in our own lives. And so, I don't know your name. I'm sorry, Becca. Becca. thank you, Becca. Thank. You. That's fine. That's fine. That's great. So, um, Becca, I have made a list of some sins on this piece paper. Ones that I've thought of for myself. Okay, you don't. You don't have to read them. Okay. I'm not I'm going to ask you to re- repent of all your secret sins in front of everybody. Gosh, yeah, that was a bit scary for a moment, wasn't it? So, but what we have right here is a shredder. Can we round of applause for the shredder? Yeah. <laughs> So, um, Becca, could you, could you put my sins into the shredder, please? Thank you. Nice. Drum roll, please. Oh, look at that. Oh, just listen, 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 listen. Oh, Oh yes. Oh, look at that. Oh, that's a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. Okay, so, Becca, your job is not done. Okay, so could you remove... Oh, oh, still going. Oh, nice work! She was the right person to get back you you. The great. yes, brilliant. Can you can you show the people some of that stuff that's in there? Can you hold it up? Okay, okay, I am going to give you some sellotape, and your job is to try and piece my sins together during the course of this talk. Okay, you can sit there and you can try and piece my sins together. Okay, thank you so much. Can you give back a round of applause? Okay, oh, yes, yes, it's being fully embraced. Well, that's quite, she's really into it. That's quite worrying. Okay. To flee, to flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness. Some translations say to pursue the lusts of youth, to pursue, flee youthful lusts. Flee, what do you flee from? Tell me the things that you flee from. What do you flee from? Give me some ideas. The gym, you flee from the gym. James is allergic to the gym. Anything else? What else do you flee from? The rain, yeah, we run out of the rain. What else do you flee from? Danger. The first thing I thought was like a burning building. That's that's something you flee from, isn't it? Anything else? The dark. Yeah, some people might flee from the dark. Fleeing is a really profound, powerful world that, 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 that Paul has put right at the start of this sentence. He is not suggesting, you know, resisting the evil. He's not suggesting defeating it with our prayers or our faith. He is saying that we should flee from these youthful, dis- oh, there we go. <laughs> he is suggesting that we should flee from this situation, flee from this situation of danger. It's not a small thing. Very, very profound. He is saying there are some circumstances that, as Christians, we need to flee from. We don't need to negotiate with them. We don't need to Google it. We don't need to WhatsApp it. We don't need to find out from our friends what they think about. We just need to get out of there. I wonder, even now tonight, by His Holy Spirit, might God be working amongst us, speaking to us and saying, "Are there some?" things that you need not to just negotiate or dance around with, you just situations, relationships, certain areas of the internet. You just need to flee from those. Just be gone. This is really profound words that he uses. And he says, don't just flee. Don't just get away, but pursue righteousness and love and justice and peace. It's an incredible call. 1 Corinthians also tells us to flee. 1 Corinthians 6, 10, 14 says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 1 Timothy 6, 11 says, Flee from these things, you man of God. Paul says this a lot, so it must be important. Even more interesting, the verb, the tense of the verb that he uses when he says flee, is not just flee now. The tense is called the present imperative. Any English students out there? Oh, that's disappointing. Oh, yes. (laughs) The tense is present imperative. That's not just do it once. That's a command to make it your habit to do so. To make it your habit to pursue love, joy, righteousness, peace, patience but to make it your habit to flee from these things that are the evil desires of youth. There are lots of cookery programs. There will be lots of sermons around Exeter this very weekend and across this year about pursuing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and justice. There will be lots of sermons that do that, but there won't be so many about doing the washing up, about forming a habit of fleeing from this stuff that will hold us back, this stuff that will distract us. Sometimes we have to talk about the washing up. Sometimes we have to do the washing up. And in our current age, it's not the easiest thing to embrace. I think it's really interesting that Paul talks about fleeing the evil desires of youth because that gives us a clue to what he's thinking about. When you're young, There's an energy. You all probably remember that energy. You're all probably maybe experiencing it still. There is something about being young. There's something profound about the energy that comes flying out of us. But Paul is saying, flee the evil desires of youth. Hang on, we we need young people to be more passionate, surely. What, What evil desires of youth? This got me thinking and it got me reading. And the word evil comes from, a, from an Indo-European derivation way, way back centuries ago. And the word is upelos, U-P-E-L-O-S. And the "upe" means to go beyond, and loss means limits. So the very derivation of the word evil means to go beyond the limits. It's not that, oh, this is the good stuff and this is the evil stuff there's a sense of going beyond the limits. There's something of like, something actually inherently good, but going beyond where it should go. I saw some of this youthful enthusiasm in my own son as I had a very uncomfortable conversation with the school teacher last week. Jesse, in his youthful enthusiasm and desire to help, had spotted a kid who had registered in his class that he had a bad back. And Jesse has heard me talk about going to the chiropractor and has seen me illustrating what happens when I go to the chiropractor. Do you see where this is going? In that youthful exuberance and enthusiasm, Jesse caught a kid, a good friend of his in his class, and held him like this and held his sternum like that and went like that, causing more tears rather than less tears causing a rather uncomfortable conversation for daddy at the end of the day. That is a line that was crossed. That was something that went beyond the limits of what was appropriate or was helpful in that context, that came from a good place, that came from a place of goodness and passion and energy. Flee from the evil desires of youth. Can we think of evil? We put it in that kind of like, oh, it's the really dark, dodgy stuff. Well, if evil is just going beyond, does that put a different spin on it? Because when you think about idols, you know, Joel led us so beautifully, praying and singing into that idea of idols earlier on. It's very easy to go, oh yeah, we, we, we don't, we're not into idols anymore. That's a kind of an Old Testament thing. We haven't got that problem. And we sort of look back and we look down on the children of Israel and we look at them you know, creating the golden calf and we go like, what what was that about? A golden calf? You've got this beautiful, amazing living God, but you've made this golden calf to worship. We wouldn't do anything like that. That's nonsense. The truth is in those days and in that culture, creating some sort of statue, some sort of memorial to remind you to worship God was actually a very helpful thing because (laughs) there were no YouTube channels to watch. There were no books to be reading. You needed physical representations, physical, huge physical reminders because the community only met in certain places. You needed big physical reminders to be worshiping and to remind you who your God was. So they weren't getting it too far wrong. They were taking an idea that was actually a fairly strong idea, but letting it go beyond what was appropriate. That's what an idol is. Idols are good things that we allow to take up too much of our lives. The biggest idols are money, sex, power. You think about it, money, it's a good thing. It allows us to exchange. It allows people to do business. It allows people to trade. Money is a good thing. But if it takes over too much of us, it becomes an idol. Sex, a good thing, an incredible gift of God. But again, If it starts to dominate, if it starts to take over, if it starts to get beyond the limitations of where it's healthy and appropriate, it starts to do a toxic job in our lives. Power, the same. Idols are good things going wrong. And so often when we think about sin and we think about the evil desires, we we kind of have it in this kind of very dark place, which is like we wouldn't really think about when actually it's all just really normal stuff. And we need to, on one level, normalize it and talk about it and be honest about it because it's just the reality of life. I have a question for you. Does anybody know when the two-pound coin was first produced and went into circulation? If you were in the first service, please don't give the answer. Worship band. There's a, there's a prize, by the way, for this. There's, the prize is a two-pound coin. Does anybody know? Anybody know? Nineteen ninety, that's a good answer. It's not the one I'm looking for. Eighty-six. Any any increase on eighty-six? Ninety-two. Oh no, we're doing better. We're doing thousand and two. Not 90, who said ninety-eight? Ah, we have a winner, ladies and gentlemen. Can can um it's it's quite dark up here. Can can any, can anybody can anybody see that? Can you see that? This is a coin that I was given this week, and I looked at it and I thought, that is so dirty. Look at the state of that coin. And I looked on it and I looked at it and I saw that the date on it was 1998. So I did a bit of Googling to find out when two pound coins are. And I thought, this coin is 25 years old. Isn't that incredible? Look at the state of it compared to this coin, which was made this year. I mean, that's not even a very shiny one. Look at the difference. And the difference there is 25 years spent in this world i'm going to give you these as a as a prize but just think how many hands this one has been through <laughs> think how many pockets and floors and wallets this coin has been through just before you embrace your prize <laughs> okay you can come you can come and get it later. does anybody else want it anybody else happy to have it I'll put it in the pig. Yeah, very honorable. Oh, gosh, you guys, you guys are such good Christians. You're such good Christians. Um, but that is just natural tarnishing that happens. You know, that coin hasn't at any point chosen to do anything sinful. It has just existed in this world for 25 years. And similarly, we don't have to actually make any negative choices to just be impacted and influenced by the world that we walk in. The place of the flesh, as Paul refers to it all the time in scripture. Dust is another great image for that. Does anybody know, next question, there's a prize for this as well. Does anybody know uh, the exact number of days that is the best, most optimum number of days um, after which you should dust your house after you've done it once? You know, what, what's the best gap? How often should you dust your house? The students shouldn't answer this question. How, how, oh, sorry. 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 How, how, how often do you think you should dust your house? Any answers? Four days. Four days. Wow. Um, No higher than that. Six days. Six months. Six months. months. Confession. Confession is good for the soul, is. The answer is twelve. The answer is twelve days. Apparently, twelve days is the optimum time. That is certainly what we work to in our house. (coughs) Not. Dust accumulates. We don't have to will it to accumulate. It just accumulates on our sofas on our kitchen surfaces in our bedrooms on our blinds it just accumulates it just comes and until it lands often it's invisible and it's so similar to our culture and (laughs) fleeing the evil desires of youth it's so similar because often until things land they are invisible you know Often things are invisible until a marriage breaks up and then we find out that it was because there was a porn problem in that marriage that seemed to be invisible and then it landed and the dust was suddenly visible. Suddenly something lands and a marriage breaks down and we find out, well, we thought it was just workplace banter. The invisible dust was just something, it was just a bit of fun, it was just fine. Then something lands. We are party to this dust. And you know, God in his church gives us people who are sort of prophetic and can spot these things and we have we're in community, so friends and people can spot these things. And sometimes you might call these people might have what you might call spiritual hay fever. That, you know, they can spot the dust and they sneeze and they go, ah, should you really be watching that? Should you really be doing that? That government decision is really annoying me and I think we should campaign against it. People who are prophetic, who like just go, no, this is just not something in the culture, something in the air. This dust is just not right. Let's take it on. Or they say to us personally, let's sort that out. These are prophets. These are early warning systems. This can be us to our friends. This is what we're called to. This is the community we're called to to work this out together. Remember the context of these verses is Paul speaking to Timothy. And we've been following Paul and Timothy for the last few weeks. As we think about fleeing the evil desires of youth, and as we think about disagreeing well, this is not something we're called to do on our own. We're called to do this in community. We're called to do this with people who will mentor us and people who we will mentor. This is not a one-off situation. This is a rhythm of confession and being honest about the world we live in and being honest about the state of our own souls. It's fascinating that he says flee the desires of youth because it would appear that Paul still believes in original sin. Now, don't get me wrong, I absolutely believe in original goodness as well, but I really do believe in original sin. I believe we're all made in the image of God, but I also believe that the image, and I can see it in my own life, gets tarnished and broken and difficult to see at times. And when that becomes true, I start to not see the image of God in myself when I look in the mirror. And the painful thing is that means I don't go looking for it in other people. And that's when I can't disagree well with folks. That's when I other them and stop seeing that those other people who disagree with me are made in the image of God as well. We're all fallen to play off original sin against original goodness is is like to play off the original sun against the original rain or original day against original night. It doesn't make sense. It's both and. We are glorious and we are fallen. And there's no point in trying to play the two off against each other. That's who we're made to be. But we live in a world that desperately needs in this day and age a theology of sin. To be able to admit that we are all fallen. I call it my 80-20 theory, <laughs> that we're all 80% good and 20% nonsense. And that might be a bit generous, to be honest. <laughs> but it allows me to listen to certain speakers. It allows me to listen to certain people and say, yeah, I love so much of what they say, but that other bit that they say is, oh, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. They have an expertise. They have a charism that you might say. They have an area in which they're given expertise and I can honor it and I can say, that's great, they're expert in that. They know what they're talking about in that area, but oh, when they start talking about this, I'm not so sure. Because you see, in our laziness, we want one guru. We want one person who's right about everything and we'll follow them. Rather than doing the hard yards of thinking, well, is that what they've said there? Is that right? How does that come with scripture? How does that come with community? We're all 80% good and 20% nonsense. And I'm getting a bit worried that Beck is making a very good job of my sin on the floor. We're all fallen. And you know, not realizing that leads to some of the carnage that we see in the church and some of the recent scandals that you probably know about in the church, where we put people on a pedestal and say, because they're great at some things, they're gonna be great at everything. Well, know that's not true. Our job is to keep each other operating out of our 80%, to keep us working in those things that we're good at, that we have an expertise in, rather than pretending that we know everything about everything. Rather than, you know, accepting this crazy world of social media where everybody has to have an opinion about everything at every point and every given moment. We don't. We need a theology of sin that allows us to say, we're all fallen. Because without a theology of sin in our society, the only thing we're left being able to do when things go wrong is to blame whole groups of people. So in one season, we'll blame the bankers. It's them that wrecked the economy. In another season, we'll blame the politicians. In another season, we'll blame the media. In another season, we'll blame immigrants. It's all their fault coming over, taking our jobs. We'll blame scroungers. We end up just slagging off whole groups of people, finding a tribe, and we're right, and they're wrong. And we other people, because we're not seeing that they're made in the image of God too. That's when we lose a theology of sin in society. That's why it's so important. That's why it's so important to understand what Paul is saying to us here, to be able to disagree well. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth do you hear the compassion in those words we are much more likely to be able to listen and understand an argument from the other side when we know that we don't know it all but you need the reference point of God the one who does know it all you need that primary identity to be found in Christ Because without a primary identity firmly rooted in Christ, we grab so tightly for those secondary identities that are so prevalent in our culture, that are so prevalent in our world. When our identity is not firmly rooted in Jesus, we still want to belong, we still want to be part of a tribe. The toxicity of social media means that we need the protection of a tribe, and so we grab so strongly. You in the political realm, we end up grabbing strongly of being a Brexiteer or a Remainer, a progressive or a conservative, a Democrat, a Republican. The identities in and around our own personal lives, we grab so tightly to that identity. And we grab tightly. And so when somebody pokes that identity or prods it or says, well, well, can we talk about that? Is that really? And then, the reaction is Visceral because somebody has poked and provoked something visceral to our identity. And I know this all too well coming from Northern Ireland. This is what happens in my country. When the idea of discussing where the border should be in Ireland, you can't just have an academic discussion about it. You know, when somebody flies a red, white, and blue flag in a green, white, and orange area, the reaction is angry and visceral. Because something about our identity has been prodded. And because we've put another identity ahead of our primary identity in Christ. And you know what that's called? That's called idolatry. When we put something else above our primary identity in Christ. And that might be a political party or it might be a tribe that we're part of. It might be a passion, it might be a sport, it might be a good thing. But if we put that higher than our primary identity in Christ, then that's when things start to fall apart and we can't disagree well. We want to take a chance tonight to be serious about starting some good rhythms of confession. When you live in a culture that nobody really believes in sin so much, it's hard to get into a rhythm of confessing because it's hard to confess and admit that actually we do think some things are wrong and we do think I see some things wrong in myself, rather than just being eternal variations on just particular stylistic choices. That there is a God in heaven and the joyous thing, the joyous thing is that he sees our choices. He gives us the most incredible free will and sees our choices and still embraces us these are words that I wrote yesterday and um, I knew I wouldn't remember them so I'm just going to read them out this honesty about sin is not condemning it's liberating it reminds people that they have this incredible gift of agency and responsibility that they're not just victims, that their choices do matter, that this is a good thing, that we're not just victims of circumstance. that's amazing to have agency. Without free will, we wouldn't have that. So we can simultaneously rejoice that we're made in the image of God, but also lament that we've allowed that image to be tarnished, just like that coin. You know the beautiful thing about that coin, those two coins that are now sat here? What's that one worth? How much is that one worth? And how much is that one worth? Exactly the same. Even if we've been tarnished, even if we've allowed this world to infect us and pollute us, it does not change our innate value. As sons and daughters of God made in his image with divine DNA coursing through our veins. What a beautiful thing. It also doesn't change the fact that on a daily basis we make decisions and we choose things that do not sit in line with His rule and reign and His will and His ways. That we are subject to original sin. Nobody had to tell us when we were kids to start being naughty, it just happened. It was natural. There are some people today who might try and tell you that original sin isn't a thing. I disagree. I've seen it in my own life and I've seen it in my my kids' lives. And philosophically, it's very hard to get to the end of that story if you don't agree with original sin, the idea of original sin, because obviously it is a good thing that today, in this day and age, it's a good thing that we understand more and more about why, for example, teenagers, the evil desires of youth, why teenagers flex their muscles and why with the hormones rearranging and why with brain development that they're testing out boundaries. We understand that and it's good, but at the same time, I think it is true that we also live in original sin. Both things can be true. More than one thing can be true at the same time. If you ask and you understand with compassion, even if you can see that somebody's bad choices come from a tough situation in their family. You ask, you go back and you think, well, why was their family situation tough? Well, because their parents experienced a really tough situation during the war. And why was their situation tough? Well, because of the, the sin of a lot of people during that generation, including the war. And then why, why were they struggling? But well, because of some stuff that happened in the 20s. and You're going like, oh. By the time you've gone back a few conversations, you're realizing, oh, maybe I do believe in original sin after all. Even though I was saying that their sin is not bad choices by them, it's just they're stuck in the context. They're stuck, in the, they're stuck with what they have. So this desire for sympathy ends up just being a lack of truth, a lack of good thinking that doesn't actually help anyone because it doesn't, people, doesn't give people the agency, the reality, the realization. Yes, yes the world is fallen, it is dusty, it will tarnish us, but also we innately make bad decisions as well as good ones. Both are true. It's both and. And somebody who I know put this far better than I ever will was the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six. So I'm going to read this. Isaiah, in his attempt to disagree well, spent the whole of chapters one to five of his book, ranting and raving about how appalling all the other nations around Israel were and how despicable people had been and how they were leaving God's laws behind. Read Isaiah one to five. It's just a brilliant rant, giving off about everything around him. And Isaiah was a prophet, so he's actually pretty accurate about everything he saw going on around him. Then in chapter six, this incredible thing happens where he meets the living God in holiness and wonder and suddenly the things he's saying changes because suddenly the problem with the world is not everyone else, the problem's with him. And that's what happens in our society and in our culture. Without a theology of sin, the problem is always with somebody else. They are always the problem. It's never that we are the problem. and Especially as the church, we can get stuck on our high horse. The great revivals of our time have begun because the church confessed and repented. Not because we accurately spotted what was wrong with the world. When we have realized our fallenness and our sinfulness in front of a holy, awesome God. Isaiah 6 says this. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah correctly spotted that he was a man of unclean lips, but also spotted that he was operating in a culture that was unclean. I live among a people of unclean lips. It's both and. It's a ter- internal work we have to do, but we have to be aware that we are affected by the culture around us. So tonight we wanted to provide an opportunity for all of us to respond to this, not just you know a few to come forward. This is a, a rhythm and a discipline that we all need to develop. This is Paul speaking to Timothy saying, you need to keep doing this. It's the present imperative. It's a command to make it a habit to do so. Make it a habit to confess. And so whether you think you've been making bad decisions this week or not, there is going to be stuff that just from existing in the world that you need to regularly give away. And these might be good things. These might be good things. This might be something good. This might be some good stuff that you do on screens that just gets a bit too far. It might be just a bit too much busyness, a bit too much TV, a bit too much Snapchat, a bit too much alcohol. These are increments, these are small increments. Satan's not stupid. He's not going to make one of you go outside tonight and shoot somebody in the KFC. He's going to just suggest a few more minutes online, a few more minutes, a few extra words on that WhatsApp chat that really won't bless somebody. Just a few percentage points. It's small increments. Satan's not stupid. So what are the idols? You've all got bits of paper on your pews at the end. If the people who are at the ends could pass them out along with the pens... This is something we're all going to do. And you're all going to make use of the shredder. Yay. And we're not necessarily talking about, you Don't. this is not necessarily the time for confessing the darkest of sins. And the wildest of stuff it might be, if you want to come and pray with somebody about something the Holy Spirit is convicting you about, then great. What we're writing down on these pieces of paper is the idols, the things that are good things, but we just let get just a little too big, just a few percentage points more. Whether it's the money stuff, the food stuff, the sex stuff, these can be good things, but we just know that they are getting a little bit too large and grabbing a little bit too much of our heart and our time and distracting us from the main thing. Amen? Do you get me? And do you want to know the exciting thing? Is that even though Becca has done an incredible job industriously, she has not even close got to putting these sins back together. And I want you to know that that's the truth about God as well. That when stuff goes into this shredder, it is this confession, it is forgiven. This is total. God is not sitting in heaven with sellotape trying to put this all back together. Trying to work out what's going on. This is forgiveness. This is total. This is the cross. This is the wonder of it all. It's unbelievable. What a deal. But God calls us to not just do this once. The present imperative. Flee and pursue. And you're going to hear lots of preaches about pursuing love, truth, and justice, and righteousness. But you're not maybe going to hear so many sermons about the fleeing, about the washing up. So let's take the opportunity tonight to start that rhythm or continue that rhythm and actually do some business with God. And so we're going to sing a song now that you can join in with gradually, but let's take the most time now, take your focus onto your pen and your paper and ask God to come and speak to you about what idols, what regular day-by-day day stuff of the world might be taking you away and that he might want to put his finger on tonight. And then we're going to come all come forward and put those things in the shredder. Does that sound like a plan? Brilliant. And we'll sing a song over you that you can join in with uh, once you're back.